Hello, everybody, and welcome to Watch Party Gaming. Uh, this is your host, Siobhan, and we have our panel here joining me, starting with Ruark. Say hello. Hello, everybody. DW. Hi. And Samaria. Hello again. And today we are talking about episode three of season one, titled Hard Times, a.k.a. Flirting Through History, a.k.a. The Longest Cold Open in the History of Television. <laughs> cold Open done two episodes in. <laughs> and, and I got to say, this is my favorite episode. Mine too. Of, uh, of season one. It is glorious. And the entire Cold Open, none of this is in the book. It's oh, nice. all made oh, really? just for the TV show to build up the history between the two characters. Um, there's some little pieces of information that are, are in the book that are more easily shown on screen this way. But um, other than that, it's all invention. Oh, wow. So starting at the first scene, we return to the Garden of Eden where Aziraphel is closing up the hole in the gate. And God comes down and says... Where is the sword that I gave you? <laughs> and you straight up lies to her face. Sword? It's funny oh, no, because... I, I'm sure I set it down. Right over here. It's oh, I was using that for a letter like... opener. I left it on my desk. Yeah, yeah. She knows what he did with it. He knows that she knows what he did. <laughs> it's almost so no point to the question. She's playing yeah. this game <laughs> where she's like, I wonder if he's going to tell me. And then he doesn't. She's like, oh, oh well. All right. <laughs> Glad well, I so know. What's interesting about this scene is he tells Crowley what he did with it. He did. <laughs> but God, he lies to. Well, he doesn't have to worry about judgment from Crowley. Um, but I, I did love that in the midst of his announcement, like his answer, the light just goes off. Like she uh-huh. doesn't let him finish a sentence. It's just like, yeah, I'm going to go now. <laughs> To me, it really felt like like a three-year-old or something. It's like the uh-huh. three-year-old knows they're caught, and the parent knows the three-year-old knows they're caught, but the three-year-old is still like, I don't know what happened. <laughs> yep. So so in the book, this text is actually um, in one of Aziraphale's misprinted Bibles because he has a collection of misprinted Bibles, mm-hmm. and it's there's uh, he's speaking to... to one of the monks who's inscribing it and saying, and the Lord spoke to the angel and said, where is the sword that I gave you? And the angel says, oh, no idea. Put it down somewhere. Lose my head next. And the Lord spoke <laughs> not again. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just like a, a little two lines, and it's just so cute. Nice. <laughs> For the next scene, we flip over to Mesopotamia, the scene of, Noah's Ark and the start of the Great Flood, um, and Zerifel has I, I, to explain I have to ask, the plan. Before the flood, was it before the flood? Was it like Cleanopotamia? Oh. <laughs> no, it was Cleanopotamia after the flood. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, they washed was it, it like Organizopotamia? <laughs> So right, Aziraphale yes, looks... Hey, they all can't be winners, all right? I still give credit to groans as well as laughs. I mean, if, if you make a joke, if it gets a groan, it was also a success for a different That's reason. true. If it gets a groan, that means that I liked it and nobody else did. And those are the best <laughs> You caused your friends physical pain. Well done, yes. sir. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so the thing I got about this scene was just how incredibly uncomfortable Aziraphale looks during this yeah. whole thing oh yeah he's like having to explain something that he doesn't agree with and 
he's talking to a demon. Of course, he's not going to say, yeah, this is terrible. It's like the first time. Well, well not, not the yet first time. There. But I think yeah. for them in their timeline, it's one of the first times where Aziraphale realizes like how thin a line he, he walks as an angel. Where like he he is fully aware of the risk of like actually saying, I disagree with the Lord, but he can't help but not. And so he's still trying to he's still trying to sort this out. How do I like maintain my position as an angel? Because it's a really nice like gig I got here without like just co-signing everything, like being at least a little bit honest. And he doesn't quite learn. And and Crowley right in front of him is an exact demonstration of what he's risking mm-hmm. by disagreeing, disagreeing with heaven. Well, I also found it interesting, and I don't think I noticed it on the first watch, um, but now seeing how brazen Crowley is uh, to not hide his eyes at this time. And then yeah. like over time starts with the glasses and what have you. But right now he's just walking around with these brazen demon eyes. With no no feel or need to hide. Yeah, yeah this I is noticed that too. The time of Nephilim too, though. So maybe just like people who are a little bit weird looking is normal. I don't know. Yeah, I maybe. think they kind of know that. Like, like the people at this point in time know that not everybody on Earth is human. And so, like, it, and also they're just you know they don't know anything yet. <laughs> not really in terms of science. So if someone has a, a pair of snake eyes, that's just them. That's their business. Yeah, and birth defects are a thing, and they didn't have sophisticated surgery. I I actually saw that a different way. Um, I kind of saw it that kind of when he's standing around without his glasses on in the middle of a of a group of people, I kind of saw it as like they're kind of invisible to the people around them. They're hmm. they're observing, but they are not. Well, then even with Azarafel, then because there's a point where Crowley starts hiding his eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And that is not clearly the case currently, in in that in that scene. Yeah, yeah. The 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 theory that people can't see them does hold some water though, because you see the scene where they are leaving, the the whole instance with the paintball, and the cops mm-hmm. are arresting everybody, and they're just walking through the center of the crowd, and nobody's yeah. looking at them. Yeah, I, I I get the feeling that they can kind of shift their relationship with exist with reality as it were so that they can either just observe or actually be part of it as as angels and demons yeah because i was gonna say they order drinks which means they clearly can be seen in that moment yeah when they want to be yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, i mean i think about like you want uh, want the bartender to be able to see you well i think about when when um gabriel shows up at the bar you turn and look one way and then you turn back and there he is. It's like he just oh, kind yeah. of appeared out of nowhere and just kind of feels like he was like non-corporeal and then just decided, okay, I'll be corporeal now so you can see me, you know. For shits and giggles. He was definitely doing that on purpose. <laughs> I think I think uh, Gabriel does everything on purpose, yeah. I'll buy that. <laughs> designed, designed to make you uncomfortable as possible. So he's the guy who announced uh, Mary's pregnancy. Can you imagine that guy coming up to say, congratulations, <laughs> you're <Shoot>. pregnant. <laughs> Glad tidings. <laughs> I mean, people get that experience every day. Get a pregnancy test that doesn't have the answer you want. Like, ah, oh, fuck. All right, shit. <laughs> So the next scene is the crucifixion, which is, quite frankly, a super ugly scene to watch. Yeah. Um, 
a note about this. Um, Crowley is actually dressed as a um, presenting female. Oh, yes. I wrote that down scene. in my notes, too. He is. <laughs> so this is the second time we see... Um, Gender. Crowley embodying a female body. Yep. female body and female dress yeah fandom had so much fun with this like in a happy way like he keeps his pronouns but that doesn't necessarily mean that crowley identifies as anything in particular or like when he's nanny he's nanny like crowley's yep. you know very much his pronouns are nanny and ma'am <laughs> <laughs> and but like no one comments on this like xerophil doesn't blink the old demons i assume don't have a concept of gender <laughs> like hell the demons in hell yeah. crowley does because he's been on earth forever but you know it's Crow- crowley identifies as evil yeah crowley's like whatever suits my mood on any given day that's that's what i'm here for and yeah. mazeltoff I've, I've seen it said that aziraphale doesn't have a gender and crowley has all of them Yes, <laughs> I like that. Which I have to admit, I kind of really like that. Yeah, yeah, that that works. I like that. The other thing, I went searching through Tumblr because, uh, and unfortunately, I couldn't find it. There was somebody who did a breakdown of their clothing in this scene, and one of the things they observed is that first of all, uh, Crowley's clothes, not just being um, a woman's clothes, but are also very expensive because that kind of dye would have been very difficult to get. And that Aziraphil is also dressed in clothes that are very expensive, but from a time period about 100 years earlier. Hmm. Like, you see that he's not dressed the way anybody else is. I did notice that, it's... but I thought that was just him. Honestly, Crowley's kind of that way all the time because, he like, is. he drives a car from the 1920s in, in 2020. Yeah, Crowley has expensive yeah, he, he likes stuff about a, a hundred years ahead, a hundred years behind the time. So Aziraphale is the one who's wearing the clothes that oh, are Aziraphale. Okay. Yeah, dated from, um, and, and I wish I I wish I could have found the post because I, I, I'm trying to remember it. I think it's like a um, more of a, um, the culture that they named was more of a, um, like shepherds, like more of a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not, not settled people, but nomadic. Nomadic is the nomadic. word I'm looking for. Um, actually, that... Now that I'm thinking about it that way, that does make sense because he's kind of the one who studies humanity by their history. Mm-hmm. And you see him, you know, in modern times wearing like the same waistcoat and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he finds something and he sticks to it. Yeah, exactly. Where Crowley just likes expensive. There does seem to be a certain amount of I'm going to look fabulous. And to talk about the actual storyline in the scene. Um, I mean, they're both really obviously very disturbed by what's going on. Crowley is obviously the demon who tempted Jesus, said, you know, just terrible things are going to happen to you if you go along with this plan. Just come with me and be a normal person, a a potentially powerful person. Give it up. And he seems genuinely upset about watching this happen to him. Yeah, the note I wrote down for this is that... in relation to tempting Jesus in the desert for 40 days, 40 nights, is that I don't think either of them, Crowley or Xerophil, like were let in on the reason for that tempting. Like Crowley seems to have done it as far as he's concerned. <laughs> Cause he's like, man, you don't get out much. Let me, <laughs> let me <laughs> take you on this magic <laughs> carpet ride. <laughs> 
like which he's poor. He's a carpenter. Hilarious. I mean, I gotta show and him something. And feels like, well, why did you do that? Like, like, and so God is like, I'm inevitable. I have a plan. You don't know it. You're just going along with it. But like, as far as Zerafil and Crowley is concerned, they're like, yeah, we're just trying to do something nice. <laughs> like Zeraf- like neither of them have a clue. Like that this has been intentionally set up like this is it is written and but as far as they're concerned it's just kind of like we're just living life do 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 Crowley's like I'm he's a nice guy he's he's nice (laughs) we had a drink once (laughs) I am not consulted on policy decisions yeah I can see that it's like he has no idea that this was coming down the pipe (laughs) he's like I just I just crunched the numbers I'm told to be here say a I do and and I don't know what I need to do after that until I'm then told my next steps. This is the hardest scene to watch. <laughs> it is. It's funny, like as a remix, though. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's disturbing, but it's funny. <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's hilarious. I like I laughed all like through the half hour of this. Um, the story as it's told in the actual Bible is that the demon who might be just be a demon might be the devil. It, it's up to interpretation it's fine either way like knows why they're doing it like in the bible it's like i'm doing this intentionally to take something away from god like this is part of our you know age-old battle but in this in this version it's like i'm i was you know i don't know why i'm doing this and so I mean, it's just. A I fun... was told go tempt him. <laughs> so maybe, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. For all Crowley, for all we know, Crowley was just like chilling, <laughs> and some guy showed up. Um, that now puts a question in my head: of did, uh, you know, the devil himself or herself or their self, um, did they? Like take credit for Crowley's conversation in like, oh yeah, I went and tempted him, but it was actually like one of his minions he sent and didn't really oh, pay the attention. Devil totally takes credit for all of exactly. Crowley's work. Like, well, Crowley says many, many times, as long as we like send the paperwork, they don't care how it gets done. So <laughs> entirely possible. They have pointed out that that hell does not really check up on things very well. So yeah, I I, I think. I think most of the time they are taking credit for stuff that they had absolutely nothing to do with. I, th- I think half of what Hell takes credit for, for they didn't even do. Well, it's just pure the Spanish Inquisition, for example. And we have the contrast to that where um, they talk about how often Gabriel checks up on things and stuff like that, which is what pauses Azarafel so often in the, this, hey, let's just both not go. I mean, we cancel each other out anyways. The next scene takes place in Rome. Um, and this is the first time we see Crowley in the sunglasses. And he's also... Well, well, we had to wait for the invention of glasses. There's that. And also he's a lot more closed off. Like he's not at all receptive at first when Aziraphale comes up and talks to him. I think that's the point where we start seeing Crowley a lot more closed off emotionally. He was... Like you see him on the, the wall of Eden and he's very blithe and curious and open. And then you see him here and he's like a completely different person. Yeah. When you do get the end of this scene where you get to see him open up again a bit. Azerophil when Azerophil makes the like, I could tempt you. And like, he's like, oh, okay, let, let's have that drink. <laughs> yeah, I think Azerophil surprised him there. This was the Just one the time frame it. I had to look up because I didn't know what was going on in Rome in 41 AD. 
Um, but it's Caligula. Oh, it's terrible things. Like I always read the, the assassination of yeah. Caligula happens in 41 AD in Rome. So you got the end of the reign of Caligula, and Crowley may be a little burnt, like yeah. a little bit, like yeah. oh yeah. man, <laughs> it's like humans are terrible. Yeah, I always read this as he's grieving. Actually, like is there, and it's very interesting how peppy and happy Aziraphale is. Aziraphale is in his element. Like, whatever that element is, that like, he's having the time of his life in 40-whatever AD Rome. Which is not necessarily a good place to be. Like, I don't think Rome is, like, a good place to be, like, anyway. Like, ancient Rome just, just did not sound nice. But Aziraphale's like, wee! And Crowley's like, damn, this sucks actually. Um... And I just think Crowley was was uh, upset because they were outdoing him. Like Crowley mm. was like, I, I, you, what do I have to do? They're already yeah, doing he, all this evil he's on like, their own. Like I, I don't even have anything to do. What's my job at this point? Oh, like, I just think he's just disappointed in people, like literal, people. yeah, yeah. like humanity. Like I buy that. they killed the son of God, who was just like, as far as Crowley was concerned, just a nice guy who was doing trying to do something good for like his culture his society you know they assassinated him you know and then here comes rome in this situation like everything's just hell and like yeah he's having a crisis but also he's like i like as a demon i'm like i have seen the worst of the worst and people outdo me every time but we did get that beautiful moment in the like during the crucifixion of, uh, well, what'd he do? Like, told everybody to be nice to each other. Oh, yeah, that'll do that'll it. That'll do <laughs> it. <laughs> he's gotten to know humans over the last, you know, 4,000 years, and he's like, yeah, sounds like humanity to me. One of the things that I thought, I had to actually sit and think about this for a while, is Aziraphale walks up and says, still a demon then, which is like this, this really out of left field thing to say, except if you think about the fact that like, what was it 40 years earlier was when Jesus was sacrificed to earn forgiveness for all of humanity for our sins. Now Aziraphale knows the point of that sacrifice. He goes up to Crowley and says, so what about you? Did you get forgiven? Are you still a demon? Do you get to go home? Huh. Can we just be friends? Can we be the same side now? Can we do each other's hair? I never considered that. I think, again, I read that a different way. I read that more as like, he's like, are you still a demon? Like, I'm kind of wondering if I'm still an angel. Are you still a demon? That's an interesting thing. Kind of, you know. I like that. Like, are, are we meeting somewhere in the middle here, or, or is that just me? You know, Are we creating a third grouping that is mid-ground? I think humans Angel. are. <laughs> I don't Demos. know if Zerfil's quite ready like for that Demos. yet. I think he gets to that point, but I don't think in Rome that he's quite ready for that acknowledgement of what's happening to them. I do see that part of Zerfil's character development, though. So maybe this is just, he's hes not even conscious of it. Maybe he's starting to do yeah. it, and it's just coming out the things he says without even realizing what he's saying. It, it, it's a Freudian slip. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A, a pre-Freudian slip since Freud hasn't been admitted yet. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. I mean, maybe you're on to something when You say there. one thing but mean your mother. Um, it, when you get that moment where he even starts dropping words like, well, let me tempt you. You know, it, 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 mm-hmm. we're already seeing that, yeah, that yeah. almost yeah. the stereotypical demonic behavior in Aziraphale. The boundary blurring. I figured it was just a joke 
to try and draw Crowley out. And, Not and how he caught worked. himself. No. There was some self-realization of I said that. Like, oh, but there was also this little tiny smile, like, you know, oh, I'm being wicked. <laughs> Which, oh, I'm, I have no doubt. Azarafel was definitely enjoying being like the ooh, I get to be a little on the naughty side. <laughs> <laughs> Next, back to England, and uh, well, I guess this is the first scene in England, um, and we are in the time period of King Arthur, who is real, and apparently the armor is completely ahistorical. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it is, but yeah, it's also an much. angel and a demon in armor. <laughs> like it's what yeah. they threw together. Like, I'm going to go cosplay a knight, and I, I didn't really do a lot of research. They were going more for style than, than oh, usability. Oh, yeah. Pizzazz. They got it at Spirit Halloween and then jazzed it right on up. It's fine. <laughs> I, I just kind of love the idea that in King Arthur's times, there are castles that just closed down because the king died, so they open up a spirit there. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> <laughs> this castle hasn't been used forever. Hey, it's turned into a spirit! I mean, it doesn't have to be a castle. It could be like some old witch's hut in the bog. True, you know? true. The witch dies. They put up a spirit Halloween. I mean, that all of the stuff's already there. You don't even have to oh, import Oh, you goods. know, there was that one that was made of gingerbread and candy. Yeah. Mm, it's been empty for yeah. a while. Yeah, we, yeah. I would make a good at spirit Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to see where you guys are going with this. <laughs> Not sure we know. So this is the, the, does, does that joke translate to Canadians? Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, we have them okay, here. Okay, yes, oh, okay. Yes, we do. Okay, I wasn't um, So this is the first mention of the arrangement. Mm -hmm. So in the TV show, Crowley is the one who comes up with the idea, and he kind of pushes Aziraphale into it, and Aziraphale is very like, oh, Gabriel would find out, and then I, yeah, no. It's <laughs> not a good plan. But that would be lying. In the book, it kind of arose organically. It just between the two of them kind of went, oh, well, you know, I am going to be busy and I have also got this thing to do. Could you take care of it for me? Because they just, over 6,000 years, just got to know each other. And it worked out that it just saved them both some time and effort. But again, in the book, you very much get the impression that Heaven and Hell don't really check up on them at all. And in the show, Azurafel is much more anxious about Heaven and, and Gabriel Michael... The archangels don't appear in the book at all. They're not even characters. I just, I, I loved the idea that you have the Black Knight from the stories, and then you, and he's just trying to sow fear and, and concern. And then Porridge. Zerfeld, <laughs> and Zerfeld's going the other direction of like, I'm just trying to counter what you're doing. So we're just canceling each other out. I, um, my note for this is this is the equivalent of an aside in the break room during a merger acquisition. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like that's the vibe. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I like that. Standing around the water cooler with the guy who's coming in from the other side. Uh huh. So. <laughs> so what's your boss like? <laughs> uh, so next we go to Shakespeare and the Globe Theater. Yeah, I geeked out on this a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I think we need to get out of DW's way and, and let DW geek for a minute. All right, DW, go. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely want some other people speaking on this. Um, this scene was beautiful for me, uh, just in the idea that Hamlet was not a popular play, apparently, and it's just a, a gift from Crowley that it did well. <laughs> um, and and apparently, he outdid himself. Exactly, yes. 
Um, but uh, it, it, well, the thing is, is it would have been an interesting angle to have them doing lines slightly wrong and that Crowley fixed it all or something along those lines. But those are the legit lines from it. You have Burbage, who's another theater owner who was occasionally in some of Shakespeare's plays and backed it. Um, but like, yeah, from from the angle of, OK, this is supposed to be one of the greatest playwrights. I thought it was a rehearsal. And then it's like, no, there's just two people in the audience. Oh, now there's three because Crowley's joined them. <laughs> like, and and his walking over and asking them for more as an audience. I originally, when I first saw the scene, thought he was going to go over there and tell them both to stop talking during the performance. <laughs> so the fact that he was trying to encourage them to interact with the person on stage was just like, oh, man. Apparently that was but the thing, though. At the theater filmed. was like in those mm-hmm. days, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I I, uh, I learned that a uh, few years back in my British lit class. You know that was how plays were. Like now, it's like everybody shut up and let the you know the play play how it how it works out. But Shakespearean times, fifteen hundreds, it's like no audience part audience participation is expected and encouraged, and if not, like you just assume you don't like it. My favorite part of this is that, that's oh, Romeo, true. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Oh, he's right over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you see him? He's on the other side of the stage, just right behind that platform. My favorite um, part is uh, the, how it they how they like sneak in, how like Shakespeare like might have been a plagiarizer. Oh, that had me on the floor. <laughs> oh yeah, just well, they, stealing lines, which I I don't believe, especially for that time, there were no laws against plagiarism. Plagiarism was being done by every playwright in England <laughs> and probably other countries as well. Um, I mean, most of the stories are retellings. Yeah. of you know, he's like, but I it, like it, that. It, yeah, I'm sure you're you right that 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 picking up that line fanfic has a long picking history. up that line from Crowley was beautifully done. But yeah, they, no, back in those times, since you didn't have the ability to darken the area where the audience was, you couldn't not acknowledge them, and all of your uh, people in the standing area, they paid like a penny to get in there. They're the poorest of the people, and they have. Almost no manners. There was people walking through the crowd selling food, which is where a lot of the rotten fruit would come from being thrown on the stage. If somebody was bad, was it was bought from the people that were down there, the groundlings. Yeah, you'd have that interaction. And I actually got to see a production of uh, Henry V at the Globe Theater in, in England. And one of the beautiful parts was when King Henry came out on stage, when I've seen it in regular theaters, you know, they put some soldiers on them and he talks to the soldiers. In this, it's him... And the audience is his army. And he rallies you to get ready to go and fight for him. And it's beautiful how he interacts with people and encourages them. And and that is kind of the magic of that uh, proscenium, open air, groundlings, you know, kind of setup is you were part of the show. Dope. You know, I, I just have to interject on this. Uh, I think the fact that Crowley made Hamlet into something huge makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> because I could never understand Not a Hamlet. Hamlet fan. <laughs> How do you go on for four friggin' acts trying to figure out if you should kill your uncle that took your birthright and is nailing your mom? Yes, of course you kill your <laughs> uncle. Like, like, why do we have to go on about four acts about this? Just it, it should be over right in the first no, act. No, this took Bam, place in Appalachia done. would have been like five minutes. It's fine. This play. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, <laughs> I just like the fact that one of Shakespeare's most popular plays 
from a, a gift demon to a yep. from a demon yeah <laughs> went from <laughs> the, the the bloody horrific you know there's some really dark stuff in hamlet and i'm sorry in, in uh, yeah in hamlet and uh man the fact that was a gift from a demon to an angel yep i'm i'm okay with that as headcanon <laughs> as somebody who has studied shakespeare my whole life i'm yeah i'm okay with that that tracks. A note about the filming. Um, the original script actually called for the Globe. This is filmed in the actual Globe Theater. Yep. I can um, tell. The original script was for it to be a crowd scene, for them to be meeting during Hamlet, with Hamlet being as popular then as it later can- comes on to be. Except when it came time for the filming, they were told they would only, because they were still using the theater to show plays, they were told they were only going to have an hour to film it and they're like all right we can't possibly get all the actors in place and all the the crew and everything in and out and film in an hour can't be done yeah so change of plans it's just them um three or four other people we get it filmed really fast they did this all i think in like one take oh wow got them the hell out of there (laughs) oh man that's cool and at this point, you know, uh, the actors knew each other and they were able to kind of like work with a really fast script rewrite and just do it. Well, it worked out. I actually, I don't know what the original script had in it, but I noticed this is the first time where Aziraphale outright admits that he cares about Curly as a person. So I don't even think he realizes that's what he's doing, but... Like, Aziraphale says it's about, like, doing things the right way for the sake of doing things the right way. Like, very lawful, good, whatever. Um, But I don't think that's the truest why behind his resistance. Like, oh, you know, we we can't do it that way. Like, he's like, I don't want you to get in trouble. And this repeats itself through the ages, clearer and clearer and clearer. But this is, like, the first time Aziraphale, like, just outright says it. And I was like, ah, he's growing up. I I suddenly... I'm realizing something um, in in their relationship. Crowley's love language is gift giving. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Zarafel being the snake wasn't necessarily trying to hurt humanity by giving the apple. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. I like that. Gifts of service, maybe you know, yeah. doing things for him. The play, the coat. <laughs> but that also brings on the the idea of, you know, the temptation of the devil. You know, are, are you taking the, by accepting this, are you accepting temptation kind of thing? This is also the scene where we see Aziraphale's puppy dog guys for the first time. So it's not like Curly <laughs> offered the gift without any prompting whatsoever. <laughs> also, you know, a demon manages to get an angel to, to do something this kind of underhanded and doesn't immediately report back to the devil saying, look what I just did. There's some genuineness to I've this. I've corrupted an angel, yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, Azurfil's smile is so broad when Crowley walks in. I mean, they obviously enjoy each other's company at this point. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a familiarity. Yeah. These humans change every hundred years. Quickly. Sometimes less. In the next scene, um, we find Aziraphale imprisoned in the Bastille during the French Revolution. <laughs> Apparently, this is also a historical. The Bastille was already demolished by this point. But it makes for a hilarious scene. Aziraphale looks like a cake. He is done oh up my in gosh. frills. The shiniest satin shoes I've ever seen. <laughs> 
He looks adorable. The hottest of messes. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking at him and In I'm every like, sense of the word. you know you didn't have to get caught, you know. Like you specifically <laughs> did not have a reason to get caught. So he's just kind of doing this for shits and giggles. And now he's like, oh, no. He hasn't seen Crowley for a while. He knows this will drag him out of the woodwork. (laughs) Well, especially if we play on that idea where you're talking about where they can choose when they are or are not seen by humans. Don't want to be caught? You can't see me. I loved the explanation. It's like, you know, heaven has has reprimanded me for using too many frivolous miracles. So I could not help but get caught in this situation, which you have dashingly come to rescue me from. (laughs) And then Uh two seconds later, he uses a miracle to change his clothes. I'm like, you aren't even a good liar. (laughs) Well, it would make sense that an angel would not be a good liar. Especially the way he gives Crowley the little once over when Crowley reveals himself. And he's like, oh, good lord. But his face lit up first. He was like, Crowley's here. And then turns around and goes, ah, ah. It was the, that was the gayest once over I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> it was like the gayest moment in television. It was so cute. And this is, uh, incidentally, the lunch when uh, Crowley is trying to talk him into helping him stop the apocalypse. He says, well, let me take you for lunch. I still owe you for that one back in Paris in 18, whatever it is. I don't remember the year. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm way out by hundreds of years. But (laughs) there you go. Oh, yeah, the reign of terror. Was that one of yours or one of mine? This is is the lunch that they're referring to that that Crowley owes him for. I, I love that there's something referred to as the reign of terror and they don't know who caused it. Uh, this really, is you? No. <laughs> it, it really shows that, you know, there's not so much difference between these two sides as we want to pretend there is. At all. Well, even even like when you see it back in Noah's time, he's like, you're going to drown out the kids? Ah, it seems more like my side's work, you know? Yeah. Oh, look, there goes one of the unicorns. In that scene, an ironic, real quick throwback, in that scene... When they glance over, the children run past, but there's also what I think is baby goats. So when he says the kids too, I'm not sure if Crowley is concerned about the goats or the people. <laughs> you can't kill kids. <laughs> but and he just is Arafel just nods. They don't actually identify which of the two they're talking in that scene. It's a little bit of a pun yeah. for the observant. Next scene. St. James Park. So this is where all the spies meet. And this goes back to what is what I've got that date actually written down this time. It's 1862. So Crowley is obviously nervous, like something happened or, you know, Kel's been sniffing around. Maybe he got a surprise inspection like like Aziraphale apparently does. His bosses just show up and he asks uh, Aziraphale for holy water and they have their first fight. The lover's tiff. This is where Crowley comes up with the line, I didn't so much fall as saunter vaguely downward. That's actually in the book, how he's listed in the cast. They have a page that lists all the characters and Mm -hmm. says, you know, the cast. And it says Crowley, an angel who did not so much fall as saunter vaguely downward. I do rather enjoy that line. It was a great turn of phrase. It makes a lot more choice to it. Yeah. Falling is not something that you attribute to somebody choosing. Whereas sauntering vaguely downward, there's definitely choice. There's there's active, you know, choices being made in that direction. Yeah. There's definitely, ooh, get, what's going on down here? 
<laughs> I get the, well, agency is very important to Crowley, and and uh-huh. yeah. Now that you mentioned, I hadn't really thought about it that way before, but yeah, his because he is always his job is to tempt humans, but he does it by putting them in the position where they have to make a choice, and he makes it easy for them to make the bad choice. That's his role. So it makes sense that he would also value agency for himself. I didn't fall like just hmm. a bit of a bit of a bad boy. <laughs> <laughs> Everything looks so much more fun down that way. So uh, this again is where Azurfell is kind of saying, I can't do that because it would hurt you. This would destroy you. You're going to use this to get yourself out of an impossible situation and I can't have that. I can't have you killing yourself and, and not being around anymore. Oh yeah. I have this in my notes as romance in all caps with three exclamation points. Um, <laughs> um, so you felt strongly about it is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. Um, it's funny. I remember <laughs> I don't remember much from the books, but I remember reading the books and going, now, listen, it doesn't have to be gay. Like, I'm sure I'm seeing things here. <laughs> or I was like, is this gay to anybody else? Is it? I, I don't know. Am I? <laughs> I, yes, it's extremely gay. Um, but more than that, Aziraphale's instinct, his immediate reflex is saying no because it would hurt Crowley. He backtracks later. And he says, no, we'll get in tr- I'll get in trouble. You'll get in trouble. You know, we're fraternizing. Like, he's very, he's very rude about this. Like, very immature. Um, he's in the closet. But deep down inside, like, before he remembers himself, He's like, no, because he essentially says, because I love you, because I want you around, because I don't want anything bad to happen to you. And I was just like, that's beautiful. Romance. And it's and it's funny that this follows, you know, him saying, well, I'm an angel, but you have fallen. You know, like he perpetually has this thing where he has to keep reminding Crowley that they're on opposite sides. I don't know if he's reminding I think Crowley he's or reminding, reminding himself. himself. <laughs> Valid point. <laughs> so they have their fight. Azurafel storms off, and they don't see each other until World War II, and we get the scene in the church where Azurafel is having an absolute blast being a double agent. <laughs> he is having so much fun in this scene. It's a game. He's got a big smile on his face. Oh yeah, <laughs> it gets to be the character in all of the books that he reads. It's so cute. <laughs> and then of course he finds out that he's betrayed, and Crowley comes in for the rescue. So this scene is what gave, got David Tennant the job. Neil Gaiman says he wrote this scene, and he knew that he needed an actor who was able to carry off the physicality of going down the center of the church with his feet burning the whole time. And he saw some scene that David Tennant had done in Doctor Who and said, that's it, that's my actor, that's who I want. He can carry this off. I have to question, mm-hmm. why were Crowley's feet burning and the Nazis were just fine? That doesn't seem Because Crowley's a demon? He's a demon. Yeah, and the Nazis are worse. They are worse, but they are human. And humans are never barred from a church, no matter what their situation is. Like, that's the point of a church, for I've, better and for worse. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to disagree with God on this one. Yeah. There would be a lot of officials of religion who would not be allowed <laughs> be, in churches. A vacuum would be <laughs> mad. If it was like that, that, would, that would out a lot of people. It would make things a lot easier to identify It'd horrible be very people I wish if they the just case. couldn't walk into a church. <laughs> Save us a lot of time. I, I, I think energy. we should start a petition. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start that petition with God. Dear I agree. God. <laughs> 
please let the concentration <laughs> affect humans. Thank you. Love, Samaria. Dear God, are you there? It's us watch party. <laughs> Dear God, hope you got the letter and I yeah. pray you can make it better down here. But, like, I bet, I bet um, Aroth- Arothama, Anathema would probably be able to send something. Adam would probably be able to send something because they're like, uh, well, they're they're both human, but like they are ethereal in the same way that angels and demons are. But that's why Crow- Crowley's affected. Because he's not human. I, I'm still saying it doesn't seem fair. <laughs> no, it's not. Oh, fair is not it's necessarily the a factor. <laughs> oh, oh, fair isn't part of, of no, God's plan. No, okay. I'm sorry. One of the things that, that I think this particular scene serves to do is they're talking about Agnes Nutter's book again and how they're re-emphasizing how it's the book of prophecies that is actually true, and that's why it's so important. And obviously, the second uh, reason is for the continued development of Aziraphel and Crowley's relationship. They haven't spoken since their fight in St. James Park, but when Aziraphel gets into trouble, Crowley still shows up, still bails him out, still rescues him. And then at the very end, you have the scene where the church has demolished Crowley has rescued Aziraphale's books and he says, you know, fancy a lift or something like that and or lift home or something like that and just walks away. And there's this scene where Aziraphale is staring after at him and he looks at the books and he looks at Crowley and there's violin music and you focus in on Aziraphale's face. And it's like every romance movie realization moment you've ever seen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like you could have flashing letters on the screen that says, love story, <laughs> love story. And it could not be more obvious. It was so beautifully done. <laughs> yeah, there, there was everything but the hearts and the eyeballs going on in that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, literal life or death situation. Like, they're going to leave the planet if something isn't done immediately. Aziraphale saves himself and he saves Crowley. Like, it takes him five minutes to realize, like, oh, the books. Like, he wasn't thinking about those damn books. He was like, no, I'm saving me and him and everything else. We'll figure it out later. And he doesn't even realize that was his decision-making process. Like, he loves Earth. Like, this is very clear. But, like, when it comes down to it, Earth is just the setting. It's just, it's just, you know, a plot device for him and Crowley. Crowley remembers the books. There's though. a couple of additions. Oh, Crowley, Crowley gives him that gift. Mm-hmm. I know this is important to you. Crowley doesn't read. He says, "I don't read." <laughs> he doesn't. But, um, but reading, but books are important to Aziraphale. Mm-hmm. There's a couple other things from that that scene. There's um, a lectern on the on the. I don't. I don't I'm a ba- such a bad Catholic. I have no idea what it's called, but basically the, the place where the, the priest stands, mm. the lectern is shaped like an eagle. <clears throat> There's a couple of scenes in Crowley's apartment where you can see that lectern. He saved it. It's in his it's in his apartment. Interesting. So if you go back through some of the apartment scenes, you can see like I think it's beside the TV or it's down a hallway or something, but you can you can see it a couple of a couple of places in that scene where the demons are talking to him. Is the word you're looking for pulpit? Could be pulpit. <laughs> That makes sense, actually. Um, no, that's what's left over after you juice the priest, is the pulpit. The pulpit. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that church uh, 
was a real church that got bombed during World War II. It's now, I think, uh, they didn't bother rebuilding it. They put in a garden in there or something. So, like, just some of the walls are standing. Hmm. Wow. So Michael Sheen has talked about this scene where, uh, you know, especially, like, the, the violin music and all that. And he says that he thinks that's the moment where Aziraphale fell in love with Crowley. I think that's the moment where Aziraphale realized that Crowley loved him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that the scene where Crowley realizes that Aziraphale loves him back is when he gets the holy water, which mm-hmm. is the next scene that takes place in 1967 with Crowley in the most amazing beetle hair. <laughs> <laughs> the beetle hair. I loved it. <laughs> which, by the way, before the invention of glasses was a way Crowley could have hidden his eyes. Just really long bangs. <laughs> Do the yeah, uh, he was thing. Close in that. He's gonna he's gonna yes, uh, exactly. do that in the early thousands when you know emo pop punk comes. Are back. we sure Crowley is not Sia? That you know, good point. You I have, mean, have a valid point. I've never seen them in the same place at the same time. Never seen Sia's eyes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So so in this scene, Crowley has come up with this Byzantine plot. <laughs> just, he could just pay somebody to walk in there, scoop up a bottle and walk out again. But no, it has to be a heist because that's way more fun. Obviously. <laughs> Crowley wants to be James Bond in the worst possible way. So one of the things from the book is when it talks about the Bentley, it says that um, Crowley's only ever put gas in it once because one of the gas stations was having a thing where if you bought a tank of gas, they would give you these free bullet hole decals. And so he's got he's got the gas just so he could get these decals and stick them in the window of the Bentley. And the scene where, uh, there's a scene where Aziraphale and Crowley are talking to each other where you can see the bullet holes right behind Aziraphale. He wants to be James Bond in the worst possible way. <laughs> <laughs> he just thinks this is so cool. Also in this scene, he meets Shadwell for the first time. I know he was kind of cute. Not gonna lie. <laughs> Played by Scott Arthur. Yes, he 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 uh, cleans up <laughs> much better in this in this scene. Lance Corporal Corporal Shadwell of the Witchfinder Army. So that um, explains how he meets Shadwell. I don't know how Azurafel meets Shadwell. I guess just if you have a group of people called the Witchfinder Army, you keep in touch. And it's a matter of principle if you're working for Heaven. I just found it so silly. I was like, I don't know if they're taking him seriously. It turns out, yes, they're taking him very seriously. Like, everybody's taking this seriously, and nobody's thinking to, like, Google it, look it up. Like, there have to be records of this sort of thing, and yet both of them get your best man on it. I trust you. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Well, to be fair, it is not the most ridiculous thing that humans have ever come up with. This is true. And the Witchfinder armor used to be a real thing. Yeah. So the idea that there's still a few people around, you know, poking other people with pins is probably not well, and far-fetched. If the get your, get your best man on this also brings up an interesting thought of, is the fact that it does not seem to have been a report on Azarafel since Eden... All these years of being off the radar, you know, the the non-squeaky wheel must be working perfectly. So then we get the very heartfelt scene where Aziraphale gives Crowley the holy water and says, you know, you go too fast for me, Crowley. And it's all very sad and romantic. And then we leap to the credits. Gosh, it was half the episode, a cold open. 
Um, yeah. This is the part where I usually just stop watching this episode because I, I love the cold open so much. It just it satis- <laughs> satisfies me and fulfills me all on its own. Yeah, it, it's beautiful. And, and finding out that none of that is in the book is even better. Yeah. It, it was invented for the TV show. And I have watched, and it is a fan favorite. Like, Gaiman has said that he was he was pressured to cut it because it didn't... For time. Didn't move the plot. Um, and he's like, no, 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 no. You have to trust me on this. The fans are going to go apeshit <laughs> over this. The and hell it I, didn't move the plot. It moved the romance forward. The romance is the plot. The romance is the plot, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. And like every time I watch this, I finish episode two, watch the cold open of episode three, go back the next day, watch the cold open again, <laughs> and then continue <laughs> on with episode three. Like if I've watched this show 40 times, I've watched the the, the this half of episode three, 80, because I just love it so much. So another part of the reason for, for having it in episode three is otherwise episode three would not have had them in it at all. And it's, um, you know, they're the main characters. Yeah. So the rest of the story that takes place on the Friday does not really involve them over much. So then we get the scene where Aziraphale has figured out where the Antichrist is, and he's trying to figure out, what do I do? How do I tell Gabriel about, like, I have known that we had the wrong boy for a while and just figured out how do I, how do I tell Gabriel? But I know where he is now because he's got an enormous hellhound with him. And then we segue to the, the hellhound. They still have no idea what's going on. <laughs> the little bit about the hellhound is, is in the book. It's very much kind of like, this isn't what he expected when he got here, but he's having a great time. <laughs> he chased a rat, it was <laughs> awesome. <laughs> And a sense that popped out on me just uh, for the first time on this specific rewatch, and it's also in the book, so it's important, is the phrase, form shapes nature. And I caught it this time and kind of went, okay, we're talking about how you have put a hellhound into the body of a terrier and it cannot help having the instincts of a terrier. But you're also talking about taking the Antichrist and sticking him in the form of an 11-year-old boy. A very loved 11-year-old boy who's allowed to be 11. So, like, this is, this is what, 2019, and yet this, we don't see this child with iPads or, or switches. We don't see this kid in front of a screen once. He is outside playing in a very idyllic pre- internet childhood he has friends um who are growing up very similarly you know his parents are a little goofy but they clearly adore him they're trying their best to raise him right he has a bit of a mean streak but he had but it's in the way that's very normal for an 11 year old boy to have a mean streak he clearly is kind and respects people on a in a general sense even so like he's not rude to his friends he likes listening to them and you know the antichrist was supposed to be this spoiled rotten overly privileged nationalistic you know kid who was supposed to be raised by like deeply misogynist racist like white men you know an abused mother the whole maybe not abused but at least neglected you know where you know everything around him is supposed to just generate like the worst kind of frat boy you could ever meet like a trump essentially (laughs) 
And instead, you get... We, I mean, we see Warlock as a teenager, and he is glued to, you know... Right. Um, his phone, and he is, you know, very spoiled. I wanted to escape them for my birthday. And you can see the difference between their lives. You know, Adam's very curious, like... He likes to explore. He's interested in new people. He doesn't assume Anathema's like weird. She's just a person who's new to this small town. Oh, cool. Let me let me talk to her. Yeah, I'll go in her house. Yeah, <laughs> there can't possibly be anything bad about going to a stranger's house who everybody calls a witch. Who's you know nowhere like it's just an American landed in this middle of nowhere town in England and has no like family or friends connection to it. He, he's just very sweet, even when he's being like a little bitchy. So but even in his bitchiness, it's more like he's standing up for himself. Like he's not he's going to call something out that doesn't make sense. He's not going to let people bully him just because they're older, or because they're in some sort of authority over him. Like he's just a really good kid. This lends credence to my whole theory that Jonathan and Martha Kent are the greatest heroes in the DC universe. They took somebody who could be a god and made them a decent person. And we found the Jonathan and Martha Kent of this universe who took the Antichrist and just raised them well and made them a decent person. And and not even, like, they didn't know he was the Antichrist. He's just their yeah. kid. He's just their exactly. child. I think his friends get some credit for that, yeah. too. Because because his, his friends are such great yeah. characters. Oh, Pepper's great. <laughs> and if these are the people you have having your back the whole time that you're growing up, that's going to have an influence yeah. on you. Yeah. Like, it's funny, because I always read that line as more for Xerophel and Crowley, actually, but it's for all of them. Honestly, it's for the Hellhound Terrier. It's for Adam and his friends. It's for Anathema and what's his face, Pulsifer. <laughs> always forget this kid's name. He's Adultery Pulsifer. And and that's actually a really good point. Form, form shapes nature. They've been taking human form for 6,000 years They've been living among humans. They've been operating as humans. That's going to have some influence in how they behave and how they think, how they experience the world. So next we see the scene where Adam uh, gets to know Anathema. She's distraught because she's lost the book that her family kept safe for 150 years, did she say? My uh, inability to track dates is, is coming to the fore in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> There's too many dates in it. <laughs> one of my biggest challenges in life. Um, so she brings Adam into the cottage, and you see that little scene with the um, horseshoe burns away a little bit of the evil in the hellhound. Adam doesn't have any problem whatsoever walking into the cottage, I assume because he's half human. They never explain who his actual biological mother is. I think that's probably yeah. just as well. Yeah. I, I can't see in any way that that story ended well. Um, <laughs> but it does have an impact on the hellhound, and he just becomes just this little bit e less evil by going in. And I think that becomes important yeah. later. Then we go back to the uh, Shadwell and Newt storyline. Um, where Newt is poking around in Shadwell's apartment and sees the name Pulsifier on his great-great-great-great-grandfather's hat and starts looking through the ledgers 
of all of the members of the Witchfinder army. God then explains the members of the Witchfinder army, most of whom are named Smith, but then you start getting into like uh, Major Milk Bottle and uh, Table. <laughs> Table and Sergeant Pepper, which I thought was absolutely was brilliant. Like, oh my God, you can literally just like go to go to the nearest store, pick up a newspaper and just steal names. <laughs> like you don't have to invent them. Open a telephone book. <laughs> this is not difficult. Like, I know you know every single MP. Just steal their names. It's fine. And then Shadwell and Crowley meet in the cafe. Crowley is reading a copy of the Infernal Times. Mm-hmm. And I tried to see the headlines in it. The only one I could make out was the one where it says, Exorcisms are on the rise in Wales. <laughs> the the infernal times and shadwell does not comment on this at all at all how's your dad i was trying to figure out (laughs) yeah i was trying to figure out what was playing on the tv set Mm. because it looked interesting but i didn't recognize any of the scenes i didn't never paid attention to the tv it does say in the book that shadwell has always assumed that crowley is in some way involved with the yes yes it does say that i do remember that bit get the feeling he's a vaguely afraid of Crowley like he's definitely not afraid of Aziraphale he like he clearly he hates yeah. Aziraphale this is very obvious but Crowley he's like almost subservient as much as subservient as he ever gets to anyone for any reason mm-hmm. I, I said this before but they really cleaned up Shadwell for the show because in the book not only is he much more grotty but he's also uh, much more racist and very unlikable in general. You know, he still got the whole yelling harlot at Tracy, but you get the impression his heart isn't yeah. in it. No, because so he's still eating. He's still <laughs> eating her Sunday roast. I, I love how he's always yelling harlot at her, and she's like, "Oh yeah, I'll bring over dinner later today." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she knows, which is she very knows. typical. She's like, of "Oh, it, like it's that. a harlot of love." <laughs> So we have a brief scene where um, Anathema is teaching Adam all about ley lines and uh, conspiracy theories and all the other conspiracy theories. (laughs) And she lends him the magazines. I found this really interesting as part of like the whole God's ineffable. I know what's going on and you never do because like. Anathema does not know that Adam's the Antichrist. She does not know that she is playing a critical part in the apocalypse as it's supposed to go, as her own ancestors predicted it would go. And she just thinks, oh, I'm just sharing some hard-won wisdom that's been tried, like that's been attempted to be eradicated by big pharma and Western government. I am sharing knowledge with this young child who you know should have it because just the man is trying to stomp it out meanwhile like i was like damn this show's actually really smart and because neither one of them know the role they're they're supposed to play that they're going to play yet and he keeps telling her who he is there is like i I mentioned before the scene where she says have you seen a beast and he goes well there's dog Uh uh-huh there's also a scene where she she asked him something about, you know, you live there and he goes, this is my world. Yep. From here to here to there to there. That's like explicitly stated. Sure does. I own this. This is mine. Well, I don't I don't think he know. Like, he's just very confident in who, who he is. And he's like, yes, 
this is my world this is mine this is a beast <laughs> like he's he's being dead serious but he doesn't realize that he's actually speaking the truth just on another level of it and like you mentioned that you know he has this idyllic childhood where he's roaming around um the fields and and you know in the woods and playing the clubhouse as opposed to playing video games and newt comes up with this thing later about how mm -hmm. he controls like the weather is always perfect always perfect for the a time lot of, of that the year. idyllic childhood is because adam has designed it that way because he has created this idyllic childhood through his ability to influence reality yep he wanted it so he got it unintentionally he yeah like yeah, he's like this is how things are supposed yeah. to be and so they are but it's not something he's consciously doing like he's not saying it's yeah. it's uh yeah it's halloween even though i know they don't really do halloween in england whatever i feel like he's a kid who would want halloween so halloween would happen in tadfield at the very least so he'd be like it's halloween and so like the costume yep. he wants is always available always perfect always ready on time he always gets the best candy at the doors and there's always candy at the doors uh whatever door he stops in you know that the town always has the most perfect decorations the pumpkins are all, always perfectly ripe when he goes to goes to pick them etc 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 and but he doesn't question it because this is obviously this is how things are supposed to be it's like he never get he, he was never taken on a field trip where it rained the whole time it's a field trip so of course the weather's going to be perfect i i hope it's perfect so it is yeah the the mere fact of we're going to the beach tomorrow so i it's hope gonna it's, sunny. Sunny. Yes. it's going to be sunny it's going to be however whatever temperature he thinks is yep. perfect you know the sun the sand is never going to be too hot to be exactly. barefoot on the food's always going to stay perfectly cool in the cooler. Like it's everything will just no one go never right. gets food poisoning. <laughs> no, like the yep. bread's never going to be soggy. So he's Tavirin. <laughs> oh, absolutely! He is the most Tavirin Tavirin <laughs> ever Tavirin. Um, so the next scene is Zerophil shows up in heaven and tries to explain what's going on. That the uh, actual Antichrist is not the son of the ambassador, but somewhere else <laughs> what i find interesting about the scene he doesn't actually tell heaven that he knows where the antichrist is he hasn't told crowley but he also doesn't tell heaven yeah yeah this is when i also realize that aziraphale doesn't know how much he's lost the plot like he somewhere in his mind he's still thinking oh well he I am the same as heaven and heaven is the same as me. So if I tell them how wrong we are about the apocalypse happening, of course it won't happen. Like, even though on some level he recognizes how different he is, he does not know that, like, <laughs> he is, he, he's an angel, but he's, he's no longer with heaven like i don't quite know how to articulate this but he's thinking oh i just have to tell them how wrong we are and they'll agree with me and yay everything's fixed you know we don't have to go to war the apocalypse doesn't happen and they're all like no dumb dumb we're like the show must go on regardless like we don't care if there are some hiccups like the antichrist is down there somewhere he's got the hellhound therefore apocalypse is now and Aziraphale seems genuinely shocked like he's upset about this he like he does not realize how like different he is not 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 until this point he still seems to think that he can persuade them mm -hmm. to his point of view and and that 
ship has sailed, but he hasn't figured that out yet. Well, there's a certain amount of also a, a, a decision that I can hide certain cards and play them later if needed, but I'm going to be much more calculated about how I play this. He's, he's a little oh. slow on the uptake. God bless him. I just, and which I, oh, speaking of God bless him, like I found that interesting. I should save this thought for like three episodes from now. Um, yeah. Speaking like, of interesting. Like no one's checking in with God. That, and I, I noticed this in Supernatural too, where like the angels are just kind of like, uh, we we're running the show like they kind of take the place of God. And so like it's not only Aziraphale not realizing that he's not aligned with heaven anymore, at least the other angels. It's the other angels like never stopping to think about, oh, like is is this God planes? Does Aziraphale have a point? Yeah, God, uh, nobody. And she's just chilling. She's like minding her business. She's just watching. <laughs> the, the other angels are so confident that they are doing what God wants them to, that they never stop and question themselves. Aziraphale questions himself constantly. All the time. The others are just kind of like, nope, we have the policy. We're, we're running things here. Questions himself, questions the, thing, uh, the party line, and yet is still very much an angel. He doesn't notice that, though. Like, he's still so worried about yeah. falling that he doesn't realize that he hasn't yet. He has arguably done something just as bad as every other demon, but is still an angel. So clearly he's doing something right, something that's part of her ineffable plan and just does not does not realize. He has not put two and two together yet. The other thing I really noticed about this scene is it seems all the scenes in heaven are shot in such a way to make you physically uncomfortable. Oh, God, yeah. This scene, they seem to have ramped that up to 11. Everything is out of focus. The lights are blinding. The faces are right up in the camera. Nothing is it's, solid. For a place that has nothing in it, I get sensory overload <laughs> just by looking at the screen. <laughs> it's awful. Nothing's in it. Where is everybody? <laughs> Like you, when you're in hell, like it's a different kind of sensory overload. Like you are aware that yeah. there are like human souls down there and like bad things are happening. But in heaven, like it's empty. There are no angels. There's no dearly departed. There's nothing there. It's it's just glaring lights and, and people who are standing uncomfortably close. It's like a mall in a wealthy neighborhood. Nothing there. Yeah. <laughs> no shit there. So from there we go to a scene where Anatha meets R.P. Tyler, Neighborhood Watch. <laughs> R.P. Tyler, every home association has an R.P. Tyler. <laughs> right. I notice he doubled back. Like he passes her once, says hi, seems to be like, okay. And then when he circles back on his dog walking, he's like, wait a minute, <laughs> which is very, very HOA, like very suburban yep. behavior. Like, you were fine until she was just a little bit, like, you know, she was just a little bit out of place. She wasn't responding to you the way you wanted her to respond. And suddenly it's a problem. And then it was not a problem when he realized, he well, he thinks he, she's a Taurus. And then when, you know, she's completely herself. And I love this about Anathema. Like, she doesn't even notice how weird she is. She just is. And she, in all honesty, in, playing in, it In the straight, context of her family. Asking... <laughs> asking him have you seen anything weird and he's like me 
Measy, you're the weird one. And then, you know, he's like, oh, you're you're just a college kid trying to get high. <laughs> Leave. <laughs> Go back to America. So next we have uh, a jump back scene to Shadwell's apartment. The phone is ringing in the background and uh, Tracy ends up answering it. Hello. <laughs> she does that every time. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and then as soon as she realizes it's for Shadwell, her voice changes completely. She does this very clipped, you know, yeah. secretary voice. I found that hilarious. In the book, it specifically says that after the very first time Newt answered the phone, he learned that you should never do that because it's always for Tracy and it's always uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so then we get the, um, the scene where Aziraphale hires... Shadwell to go check on the Antichrist is able to give him the actual address. And so now Shadwell has two people sending him to Tadfield. I'll put my best squad on it. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And then Newt figures out that Tad, all by himself, with very little to go on except some newspaper articles, that Tadfield is where weird things are happening. Newt is not worldly, he's not sophisticated. But he's obviously really, really smart. Yeah. I mean, he put that together in record time with no more evidence. And yes, without he and he can't use tech of any sort. Like, so he has to do this all by hand. He is completely analog, and he just and it's not and it's clearly something most people won't notice. Like the people of Tadfield don't notice. Uh, what's his face doesn't Shadwell doesn't notice and in fact Shadwell's told and he's like that's dumb I need some like something out of the ordinary and Newt was like this is out of the ordinary like just because it's not dramatic does not mean it's not divergent which is a very important theme in Good Omens and, and it also speaks to his place in the prophecy not only does he have this thing where he disrupts computers just by touching them but also it means he can put information together in a very atypical way he has he, he can't sit down and look something up on Wikipedia he has to go to the library and pull out books and make connections so his brain he's been doing this all his life because that's the only way he's made it to this point in his life made it through school he can't keep a job down because <laughs> jobs in the world involve computers but but it's made him able to put information together in a very unusual way and so that he could figure this out it's our neurodivergent king yep everybody yes. undiagnosed <laughs> has, has figured out coping mechanisms that make no sense but we we had to figure it out I didn't really care for new and I still don't but this is the part where I begin to like respect him same with Shadwell as far as Shadwell respects anybody but I think this is also where Newt starts getting his confidence like he's like wow I can do something and I can do it well and it can be helpful I just I feel a swell of pride for him I'm happy for dude at this moment when I reread the book there's a description of Newt that says he is nondescript to the point where if I went into a telephone booth he would come out looking like Clark Kent <laughs> wow <laughs> damn <laughs> Ouch. And it also explains his relationship with Shabwell a, a bit. It said, like, he started off spending time with him out of pity. Um, and that moved to kind of like a begrudging respect and then actually started to feel some affection towards the man because as, he's as mad as a hatter, but he has a cause and he's very committed to the cause. And so Newt just kind of gets rolled up in this cause and just ends up going with it. He has nothing else to do. Like, it's his most stable position ever. But also, yeah. <laughs> it, it lends his no life computers. some color. Like, Newt's just yeah. had a very 
bland, flat life. And for once, it's like he, he has something to look forward to every single day. It's always something like new happening in the Shadwell household. It gets him out of the house. And then we meet Famine for the first time. The second I'm sorry, Famine the creeps horsemen. me out. Famine's the worst of them for me. He's <laughs> awful. He's terrifying. So in the book, he actually made his fortune writing diet books. <laughs> and so all these gorgeous starlets are starving themselves to death and making him rich in the process. And so, like, he's, there's this one scene where this woman in the restaurant, he's in the restaurant where a woman comes up and asks for an autograph on her copy of his book. And he's like, oh, she's beautiful. She's got maybe six weeks. <laughs> like, wow. Oh, my God. Yeah, famine, like. And from there, he branches out into chow. <laughs> famine just, like, on a visceral, bone-deep level, unsettles me in the way, like, I found war funny, which, I'm so sorry, like, <laughs> like, the, like take that sentence out of context, it's terrible. Um, but war amused me. Pollution and death were just, death was campy, and pollution I just could not take seriously. God bless, like, she's she just... I was like, okay, girl, it's it's a it's a muddy it's a muddy polluted river. Yeah, of course it's beautiful, whatever. But famine, I think it's because famine was real in a way and like very personal in a way the other three weren't for me. Like I'm sure somebody else would have a different, mm. very much have a different view depending. But mm-hmm. it, I would. Oh gosh, <laughs> famine. May, I wanted to crawl out of my skin. And hearing chow, don't call it food. Uh, the disclaimer that you have to play, the fact that it tastes like nothing, it is nothing. But you can sell it and it's like, wow, look what you, oh, I, it freaked me out. Do you remember when they came out with those potato chips that were made with Alestra? Oh, uh, it's like yeah. fat that was engineered, um, so that your body just wouldn't digest it. Is that even still on the market? No, no it's no, not. No. After after uh, people started shitting themselves after eating those chips, but they no, took them the, off the market. The diet pills still are. Fat that doesn't digest just goes right through you. The diet pills still are. Food that doesn't actually have any food content. Yeah, like not not even speaking about candy or junk food, but like it's disturbing stuff. Oh, just even just like processed packaged food. Like if you actually look at the ingredients, you're like, this is nothing. This is absolutely nothing. Well, I remember growing up back in the '80s, and my mother just constantly buying a string of new products that had less stuff in them. You know, candy without sugar and things like that because you know oh sugar was the bad thing oh fat is the bad thing so here's all this stuff without fat Rice and it, it was just you know food without food just like you're saying and and it it became yeah. a societal thing uh 100 calorie snack bags which i'm like listen if i'm going to yeah. eat an oreo i just want i actually hate oreos i just want the oreo <laughs> you know like 100 yeah. kids, like the calorie just, count you know. is beside the point at that at that instance it, i'm eating this because it tastes as good and that's the thing that got me about chow is that it also didn't taste good like it had harmed you but you didn't even get the benefit of like making your taste buds happy you were just miserable start to finish before you were finished from the anal leakage <laughs> <laughs> 
That's a that's a wonderful euphemism <laughs> right there. <laughs> I gotta say, thank you to the 20th century for bringing us anal leakage. Nice way to tie it all back Doesn't together right. with the uh, Alestra as well. Uh, yeah. You know, and just how giddy he is about it. Okay, so... I know, I don't like famine. Two, two horsemen down. Next we have uh, Crowley calling Aziraphale to meet at the third alternative rendezvous. Which is has to specify has, has to yeah. which one that is. <laughs> which one's that? <laughs> is that the record store or is that the the coffee place on third? Like, it's just very. It just reminds me of like neighborhood kids, and they have their elaborate like <laughs> games and secret societies that they. <laughs> and you so know, oh, do we meet at the swings or You're ruining at the, the pool? Game. Like, where? No, we meet at the basketball court. You know. Well, well, <laughs> this is more evidence to your fact that Crowley wants to be James Bond. Oh yeah, yeah. come now on! You have to meet me at the secret place and say the <laughs> Third code words and stuff. Like, there's no need for them to do that. He could have just said, "Meet me at the bandstand." <laughs> no, yeah. no, no. We have to obfuscate, op- whatever that word, obfuscate everything. Just, just because we can. Goofy. And that, and that leads to them meeting in the bandstand and having the heartbreaker. Oh. <laughs> The big breakup scene. I wanted to kick him. I wanted to kick his shins. (laughs) But, you know, like, I've been on both ends of this. I've been the Aziraphale. I've been the Crowley. And it's just like, it sucks sucks. either way. (laughs) Either way. And Aziraphale is literally in tears when he says, it's over. You can see him. He has to look away. His eyes are wet. This whole scene is not in the book. It's not. There there is no um, breakup and then being reunited. Um, but I think it, it it really emphasizes that this is a love story. Yeah. Like you go through this whole, you know, you show the falling in love scene or the love realization scene. You see the development of the relationship, and then you see this 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 big heartbreaker scene. And Aziraphale brings this thing up again: "May you be forgiven. You were an angel once. Come over to my side. Be safe. Be with me." And Crowley is like, "No, we we'll run away. The two of us will go somewhere else." They're both trying to pull the other person towards them. Like, I want, the apocalypse is coming. There's nothing we can do with it. I want you to be safe. Please come with me. And then they can't reconcile their different sides. And they walk away. Have a good doomsday. Crowley always gets to the point first. Like, he, he, Xerophil is very correct. Like, you go too fast for me. And Crowley has realized at this point that being an angel and a demon are beside the point. Aziraphale has not. And so Crowley is like, we're on our own side where like both literally and metaphorically that is true. But Aziraphale either hasn't noticed that's the case or hasn't reconciled within himself that's the case. And so he's still he's still clinging he's still afraid to of the infrastructure that if not keeps him safe because i he knows by now that he is very unsafe but it's it's the devil he knows versus the devil he doesn't so to speak <laughs> like he doesn't he's not Aziraphale is not good with not knowing what's coming which is why he's always so uncomfortable the last six thousand years with everything that i can relate to every, that right <laughs> everything that's happened and he's like i don't like that this is happening he didn't know that it would like and he's like why would it happen that's awful in a kind of backward sense, he's like, okay, well, even though this is awful, it's still what I've got and it informs the structure of my life. And so I'm going to stay here, even if it no longer serves me. 
And that <laughs> I've had this breakup too with people. <laughs> when you think about it, Crowley's already been through the absolute worst thing that can happen. Mm-hmm. He's been through the fall very early on. He does not like being beholden to hell, but at the same time, he's figured out a way to kind of work around them. Azurfil still fears the fall because it hasn't happened to him, and it's still potentially there as a way of punishing him. And so he's going to be much more constrained. He's going to be much more fearful, and he's going to be, you know. Yeah, so, yes. Like, however much he's pushed his boundaries, he doesn't know what, he doesn't know what the trigger is. Yeah. That would go from, you're you're an angel who's gone rogue, but you are still, you are still doing what you're supposed to as an angel versus oh you've crossed the uncrossable line you you cannot you turn back that's that's a wrap off you go Mm -hmm. and you know changing sides at this point in the game he has no guarantee that he would be able to get back to earth so falling also has that risk is it going to cut him off from crowley because crowley's earth agent and azurafeld no longer is so there's Mm -hmm. also that He doesn't know. He doesn't know hell. He wouldn't know how to escape. He doesn't know any back doors. He does, and we already know Aziraphale is nobody's like. <laughs> he's nobody's secret agent. Like he's not <laughs> slick at all. No. And so he doesn't know how to lie, or at least lie well. He doesn't know how to be slick about things, and so he'd be stuck. So Crowley and Azurfell go their separate way. Sad music plays. It's it's the scene that breaks our hearts. And then we go back to Adam. So there's a, a there's the scene where Adam is talking to his parents about all the things in the magazine. And the parents are saying, yeah, it's not real. And he goes, yeah, I think I'm going to go to bed early. And he takes the magazines with him. So I never read this scene this way before. But after Simon last week was talking about the fact that she thinks that that Adam's parents find him unsettling. He's still their son. They still love him, but there's something about him that's a little off and a little a little unsettling. I wouldn't go so far as to say scary, but <laughs> that scene, I think, if you read that scene that way, you can really see it. They're kind of like, okay, something's going on. We can't quite put our finger on it. Is something wrong? Should I go talk to him? And and Arthur says, no, no, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. Just leave it alone. I um, I don't know if they're scared of him, but they're definitely scared for him. Um, like they're realizing that their son, and this can be like just in a very typical your kids growing up, and they're they're asserting themselves as a as a very as an individual separate from you versus as being an individual that's an extension of you. The way you know, the difference between childhood and adolescence. They clearly don't know what to do with him. They are very unsure, like they're not on even footing. So like, however, like, weird their kid may be from a typical 11 year old in their society, like they still knew their kid. And this is when they realize that they don't like their kid has access to information and is in a world that they cannot comprehend anymore, either at all or entirely. And it's like, well, what the hell do we do with that? We don't know. They're on uncharted ground. Mm-hmm. And they have nothing to compare him to, really. Like, if you're, if they're going to go on, like, parenting Reddit and ask for advice, everybody's going to be like, your kid's great. <laughs> what do you mean they don't watch TV? <laughs> so then you get the scene where, in his sleep, he starts changing things. Yep. The nuclear reactor goes away <laughs> somewhere. Who knows where? <laughs> and you start hearing the whispers. You can make it happen. You can change things. You can starting. It's starting. 
What's interesting about this is that the changes that he starts making are based on the magazines that Anathema gave him. There's a line in the book where it specifically says he liked Anathema and he wanted to make her happy. So the entire apocalypse would have been very different if he hadn't met Anathema. It, it took the shape of UFOs and disappearing nuclear reactors and Atlantis returning. It could have been very, very different if it had been Warlock and the things that influenced his dreams were... So you're saying it, it was kind of a gozer situation, choose the form of the Destructor, and he decided not to choose... The Stave Off Marshmallow Man? Yes. He chose missing nuclear reactors and, and Atlantis. And, and UFOs. Yes, exactly. And the yeah. Kraken. Okay. So there's there's a bit about the Kraken in Anathema's magazines, but Aziraphale also knows like, oh, the Kraken is supposed to come out the sea and the sea is supposed to boil. So on one point of view, the apocalypse as Adam makes it be is exactly how it is supposed to happen. However, they don't know, like the players on Earth don't know that that's how the apocalypse is supposed to happen because Adam is quote unquote the wrong antichrist. So is the thing with the Kraken happening because it's supposed to happen or is it happening because it's in so much popular media because it's prophesied? It's in the magazines because it's prophesied. It's prophesied because it happens. It happens because it's in the magazines. Like, <laughs> it is. You know, that's an interesting question because, like, for instance, the Kraken shows up in, um, oh, what's the old Harryhausen movie? Uh, Clash of the Titans. Sure does. In Greek mythology. And the Kraken has nothing to do with Greek mythology, but... Now, at this point, most people associate the Kraken with Greek mythology because of Clash of the Titans. And it's kind of that same thing. Like, it becomes part of the popular culture and just has to be accepted as part of the, the myth now because... Like Dante basically inventing hell. Yeah. yeah, that's... Yeah, there you go. Yeah, exactly. Dante wrote fan fiction and... <laughs> Bible fan fiction. And <laughs> And invented hell. And now that's, you know, part of, of Christian theology. So I want that kind of influence one day. <laughs> so, so Anathema's ancestor prophesied <laughs> all of, you know, what was going to happen over the course of Armageddon, put one of her descendants into the middle of Armageddon, and thereby influenced how, how Armageddon happens, how it manifests. But heaven doesn't know this. Heaven's, heaven and hell still thinks... They think they're they in charge. The wrong <laughs> they have no idea. <laughs> Ain't got shit to do with anything. <laughs> they think, oh, you chose the wrong Antichrist. No, buddy. So that, end, that ends the episode on a cliffhanger. <laughs> sure does. Things are starting to happen. Anything else either of you want to say about this episode? It's perfect. <laughs> like, I always get really upset that it's the third episode and not one of the later ones. Because for me, this is where the show peaks. And so everything after this, it's not that it's not good. It's just that it's not the best. And so I usually, I, I really do usually stop watching at this episode, like in all of my rewatches, which is a lot because it's become a comfort show. Oh, yeah. For so me too. like I tend to just put this on when I don't know what else to watch. I watch a lot of TV while I'm doing my hair. Like that's how I get through through shows that I might don't want to actually sit down and pay attention to. But I want to actually like ingest and so that's I've watched a lot of Good Omens over the last four years, like 
doing my hair and it's almost always episode three it, it has definitely become a comfort show for me as well there's something about the message of dumbasses doing their best save the world on accident that just really speaks to me right uh, now just... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, roll tide, same. I, I would like to actually ask both of you because both of you seem to really 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 enjoy this episode more than the others what is it specifically about the episode that that draws you in so hard? Um, the love story. Okay. Yeah, I um. Just, just more more explicitly spelling out the love story yeah. is, is in in the book. Okay. They're much more of an old married couple. By the yeah. time you meet them, they've already had their six thousand years to go. They have an established relationship. They're dealing with very little interference from outside. This is much more a love story against all odds kind of story. And so what I'm hearing is for the book readers, this is the prequel that they've been wanting to see, which is the the courtship of these two and not just them in their in their prime. Exactly. Or in their old age. Yeah. Okay. I can I can understand that better now. Thank you for for explaining that to me. I do find the the episode very interesting, but I can understand now why on a book reader level it would be that much more interesting. I think for me, there it is the love story. Like that's reason number one. You get and and unlike most couples, I get six thousand years of it. So you know you see how these <laughs> two people change in very important ways, a little bit out of time, sometimes by leaps and jumps, and how they interact with each other, how they interact with their environment, and how things change, what stays the same regardless of the context, and how they learn about themselves, how they develop as people, and how their relationship changes. You know, it's goes from being friendly acquaintances to like being best friends, whether, you know, they like it or not. At some point, they really lean into the fact that they're the only two that truly understand each other on this planet. And even when they are at each other's throats, inevitably, they still come around to each other. But also, like I mentioned this when we were watching The Sandman together, I just really love instant time travel and so this is a form of it at least to me um and so I just really like the different points in history like what pops up what like is this their highlight reel is this what they remember the most like out of every instance like I my personal headcanon is that this is not these aren't the only times and places where they meet up with each other but for some reason Rome, Western Asia slash the Middle East and England are what's important to them. Like we don't see the Americas. We don't see the rest of Asia. We don't see Africa at all, which <laughs> which is a shame considering like how involved they were in the ancient world. But this matters to them. So how does their environment change and how do they change with it? I, I just find I, and they're funny as hell. So I just find it hilarious at times, too. Um, but yeah, it's just. It just hits all of my buttons in exactly the like the way I like them to be pressed. So it does it for me. And Neil Gaiman has explicitly said that the time periods between the segments that we see are for the fanfic right fan fiction writers to fill in. (laughs) (laughs) And it's all out there. (laughs) I I I love that Gaiman embraces his his fandom to such a degree. It it's it's really heartening. Yes. 
Very much so. He's very good at it. So I guess we can call that an episode. We have, uh, I think, said everything about episode three that we can put together. And uh, so, Ruark, handing off to you. Oh, we want to say thanks, as always, to Michael and Jen out at the Secret Watch Party Island headquarters. Thank you, Michael and Jen. Thank Thank you, you, Michael Michael and Jen, Jen for steering this ship. And, and of course, listen to all of the other wonderful Watch Party Productions podcasts. We've got uh, Watch Party Lord of the Rings, Watch Party Wheel of Time, a Watch Party of Ice and Fire, and now Watch Party Gaiman. So be sure to check those out. We'll be expanding even further in the future. I'm sure Watch Party is eventually going to take over the world. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us at Gaiman Watch Party on Instagram and Twitter, or you can send us email at gameandwatchparty at gmail.com. We'll read those uh, on the air. So that all being said, uh, let's lead into our final question. Siobhan, you've got a final question. So if you had the option of choosing a time period to watch Zerfell and Crowley interact, what would you like to see on the screen? Simon, you got a big grin on your face. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I would either like them to be in ancient Egypt. I don't care which dynasty. I just think it'd be fun um, to see them. Um, Or in the Harlem Renaissance. Because I think the Harlem Renaissance is cool. And I think they would both absolutely love it. Maybe not for the same reasons, but they would have the time of their lives. I like those answers. Thank you. Um, myself, I would like to see them um, specifically on the 8th of June, 793 in Lindisfarne. What happened on that day? Uh, that would be when uh, when some uh, very generous uh, Viking peoples came and, and liberated many, many amazing artifacts from the Lindisfarne Abbey. Oh, roll and, tide. And began began the uh, age of Vikings coming to to uh, the British Isles. I'm personally imagining uh, Aziraphale in my head in some kind of a monk's outfit and Crowley rolling up in full Viking gear. And... That would be awesome. <laughs> I would pay money for that. So Samaria managed to take both my answer and my backup answer. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Great mind. Because, because my first answer was um, Egypt, specifically during the time of Moses, to Ooh. see how they were involved in that story. Mm. And my, my second answer was leaning towards uh, prohibition in the U.S. and like the whole Great Gatsby Oh. scenario so oh, now i have to come up with number three Wait. <laughs> yes they would have hated that. but, but who's on which side because it could, the answers could go either way with this oh yeah they're oh. both um in favor of prohibition but for opposite reasons <laughs> <laughs> all right um so i have to come up really fast with an answer to number three and i'm gonna say feudal japan Just because it is uh, a very um, structured society, and and I think um, Azurfell would really Azurfell likes order (laughs) in in you know his external world. He likes to know where everything stands, whereas Crowley is a little shit disturber, and and I think both of them would like absolutely flourish in that environment. But again, for opposite reasons. (laughs) Oh, that's cool. I really like that. I like all your answers. <laughs> well, I, I, I get my, my 
first choice automatically stolen from me by the show because it would be Shakespeare. Um, but no, I, I came up with an alternate option. Uh, I would love to see them at the Inquisition. Oh. I'd love to see who's <laughs> feeling how about all of that going on. Because there's a lot. <laughs> I get the feeling they would both just kind of walk in, look around, be like, well, somewhere else. Yeah, this is not my scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I hear that, uh, you know, the south of France is very nice this time of year. <laughs> <laughs> what a travel I can yes, the Australia. Australia. <laughs> right now. Let's head over there. Let's <laughs> head to Australia. Let's go to Australia.